Welcome everyone to the ICQ Tech Talk podcast. In today's episode, we will discuss topics like creating a startup and sowing the right seeds of company culture. My name is Peter Varady. I'm a senior engineering manager at IBM Budapest Lab. And today I have Kevin Goldsmith with me. Thank you very much, Kevin, for accepting our invite to this podcast. Um, would you please go ahead and introduce yourself quickly to our listeners before we kick off? Uh, sure. My name's Kevin Goldsmith. I am the Chief Technology Officer at Anaconda, the data science company. Prior to this role, I've been uh, Chief Technology Officer at a few other companies, at Onfido, at Avo. I was a VP of Engineering at Spotify. Uh, I was nine years at uh, Adobe um, as a director and doing other roles. I was eight years at Microsoft and been at a bunch of other companies as well, um, including IBM, uh, many, 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 many years ago. Yes, I saw that in the resume. <laughs> okay, thank you. So um, a simple warm-up question, right? If you were to start a new company from zero, who would you hire first and why? So I would assume that I wouldn't need a technical co-founder in that case, because I am the technical co-founder. Mm -hmm. But it would be very much dependent on what the the company was going to do and what the innovation was what the the raison d'etre of the company was so if it was a company that was building you know if i had an insight around a fundamentally new approach to a market or a non-technical innovation right if i wasn't building my company around a technical innovation i would be looking for a, a business person a, a salesperson possibly somebody who would understand that the, the way things work today and the way things could work with with this sort of innovation and they mm -hmm. would help um help me kind of build that out whereas if i was a business person and i had a technical innovation i would go hire a technical co-founder for example. Um, so I would look for one, the, the skills that are complementary to myself, but then the ones that are aligned to whatever the idea was, whether it's a salesperson or uh, uh, just kind of general business person. Um, but because I am a technical person, I'm, I'm almost certainly not going to be looking for a technical person. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. You know, this uh, instantly gives uh, a follow up question of, of how would you then form the core? of this new company and, and what best practices would you recommend around it? From starting from zero, which I've done uh, a, a couple times in, in, in my life, um, you know, the, the critical parts are getting to market quickly. So I'm very much a believer in, in lean, uh, lean startup approach. And I built that uh, both in startups and as well as in kind of bigger companies trying to get a new product to market. So I would, I would very much follow that, that kind of process. So I'd be looking to, with me and a co-founder, what can we do to start validating our hypotheses as quickly as possible, putting anything into the market just to try and get traction with customers, get insight from customers, and then use that to then kind of figure out the next steps. Who do we need next? Um, are, can we actually start generating revenue? Not enough revenue, not worrying about um, bootstrapping necessarily, but just making sure that we can actually prove that our fundamental idea is correct. And if it isn't, then we can start pivoting and trying to find 
the right version of that idea that's going to have product market fit. So, you know, that, that would be my focus. And so that would also then dictate if we, what, who we need to hire next. Do we need another salesperson? Do we need uh, uh, another a developer? Do we need um, somebody else? That'll help us understand that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So based on, on initial feedback or initial findings when it comes to the market and, and yeah. understanding the, you know, the... the... <clears throat> but always working in the market. And, and, and you know, yeah. it's, I'm not a hardware person, so it's unlikely I'm going to build a hardware startup. Uh, that changes things a little bit. You need a little bit more capital in advance. But um, aside from that, yeah, that, that's what I'd be doing. If I had to, um, like a, a medical, if I wanted to do a, a medical startup or a, a legal tech startup or, or an edu tech startup, right, that that would probably, you know, do I hire a teacher? Do I hire, you know, those kinds of things? Mm-hmm. So you, you select or you identify the market first. And yep. then you see the viability of the idea that you have. You start validating it through quick feedback loops. But then you know this this is uh, this is this is what you know typically common sense dictates as well. So you're absolutely but, but, right. but you'd be amazed how many startups don't do that. They exactly. spend a year building a product, the yeah. wrong product for the market with no product market fit, but they spend millions of euros, go into the market and just disappear. Exactly. Yes. When is the right time to start forming or creating the basis of culture? So culture happens immediately, whether you intend it to or not. If you're uh, uh, starting solo and building a company on your own, you're dictating the culture because the culture is whatever you think. That's just kind of natural. If you have a co-founder, the co-founder you choose, the things that the two of you agree on, that becomes the basis of your culture. The culture of your company is existing from the moment of its inception. And if you're not conscious of that, if you're not thinking about that when you pick a co-founder, if you're not thinking about that when you pick your first hires, you end up um, possibly putting yourself in a bad situation for the long term that you have to then fix as you become aware that you're building a culture that's not sustainable. From the day, from the, the moment you create the company, you need to at least have some thoughts about what the culture is that you want to build. And, and choose the people you bring on accordingly. Mm-hmm. So it starts from, from day zero. Absolutely, from yeah. day zero. I, I really do like uh, what you're saying around being conscious of, of culture and grooming culture from, from day zero, because maybe this is another typical example of, of uh, a failure when you know a startup only focuses on the product or the yeah. process or the innovation, but then it cannot scale. Right. Exactly. I've, I've seen this mistake go both ways. I've seen the mistake of kind of not acknowledging the criticality of culture or the culture that is developing and because you're so focused on the product. It's understandable, right? You're trying to, to the product's going to determine whether the company survives or not. The culture is going to be an issue longer term, but shorter term, you're just trying to trying to trying to get product market fit. Mm-hmm. The the but I've also seen kind of companies over-index on we're going to be this company without <laughs> thinking enough about the product. Mm-hmm. And they have, they kind of make that mistake. They never, they never reach any sort of uh, uh, level of success because they're so focused on the company they're going to build and not on the product they're going to build. You have to find that balance. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Okay, thank you. So if we move on uh, a little bit further, 
you have the core, you have the cornerstones of, of culture, you have a validated idea, so to say, and then it looks like that, yes, you are yes. sitting on a gold mine. That's great. Okay. So now it's time to grow typically. And this is, uh, this is a stage which, which brings new problems. Now, if we start first focusing on, on leadership, uh, you wrote an article back then in 2020, November, if I remember correctly. The title was Succession for Scale. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. Could you please? Uh, I, I found that article very interesting, and this is again, you know, an aspect that is not uh, typically known uh, for startups as well. Maybe I'm allowed to say that. Could yeah. you please give us a, an overview of this concept of of succession for scale? Because I, I mentor a, a lot of startups, and I and I and I have over the years, and and have been part of a bunch of different startups. I think one thing that. I end up having to explain over and over again, something you kind of have to remind uh, founders and and people in startups, which is people are good at different levels of the company. I've sort of found my niche as a CTO in the kind of companies that I like to be CTO in. And I can do uh, other size companies as well, but it's not my comfort zone. It's not what I'm naturally good at. And so understanding that, you know, one, I, when I come into a company, I'm looking at the folks that work for me and I'm saying, okay, are you at the right scale for this size of company? Are you going to be at the right scale for the next size of company? Because uh, being a, a good manager for five people is very different from being a good manager for 25 people, which is being very different from being a good manager for 50 people or 100 people or 200 people. And the game of a startup for the individuals that are in it is can I grow faster than the startup is growing? And the answer is usually not. It's actually a very hard thing to do. And so for those folks as a leader coming in is can I grow them? Uh, do I see that they're growing? And when I see that they're not, can I, can we acknowledge that? Like, look, like this is getting beyond you. Let's find a role for you that lets you continue to grow. But you know, the role you're in is not going to work. Um, but being aware of that from the beginning and not pretending, I think people like to pretend that, oh, I'm going to be from, from five people to 5,000. I'm going to be that person that is with them their entire lifetime. And that's almost never possible. That almost just, there's very, very, very few people that can do that well, because it is, if you imagine like all the different, how the job changes. And if you've never done that 5,000 person company job, trying to grow from being just a manager of a small team to that, it, it isn't really possible. It takes a very kind of specific type of person. The article is really about acknowledging this. And then, and then rather than pretending that, you know, your first dev lead is going to someday be your VP of, of EMEA engineering with like 10,000 people reporting to them instead say, be, be very conscious of this. Hey, this is probably what's going to happen. Let's make sure that we understand this life cycle. And then as you see that person kind of topping out, setting up succession planning, who's going to come in, what are you going to and make sure that that person knows that even when the company scales beyond them, that, that they'll have a role. It's going to be a different role, but that they'll have a role and you'll still support them. Or it may be time for them to go find a company that, that of a certain size that they can go and do that role again, where they're either happiest or where they can get maybe on a slower path where they can continue to grow. What, what are the typical signs when a leader starts to struggle? 
the signs I, I tend to see is that they spend, you know, they spend too much of their time kind of doing their old job. It's kind of as your team scaling, you get to be a new job. So if you're in a very small team where you're a coder and you're also the manager, eventually you have enough reports that you can't have, you can't, you don't have any time to code anymore, right? But I see a lot of folks struggle because they really want to keep coding or they feel they need to keep coding and all of a sudden either they're not doing a good job as a manager because they're insisting on coding or they're now working 80 hours a week because they're essentially doing two jobs. So that's mm -hmm. one thing. Or you go from being a manager of a team to being a manager of managers, but you're so used to being like right in the middle of things and directing work or, or, or that kind of thing where you can't give the space to your managers. Same thing when you move uh, developer to manager, manager to director, director to VP, it's understanding what the scope of your new role is or the scope of that role, how it's changing as the team grows um, and then not doing that new work. You're still doing kind of the old work uh, because you know how to do that work at a certain point, but you don't know how to do the new work. You don't know where you're supposed to be spending your time. And it seems strange to you because you haven't done it before. So some of that you can mentor, right? Obviously that's my job um, to mentor these folks as they, as they move through it. But you know, it's a big adjustment to make, especially if you're having to make it quickly. The time I spent going from developer to manager, to director, to VP, to CTO, that's a career, right? That's a career's worth of growth for me because I started in big companies, not in small startups. And that made it easier for me, although it made the, my career longer. Um, mm -hmm. For people who are doing this in a growth startup where that time for me was, you know, 20 years, for them is like three to five years. Like you can't, like the changes are happening so quickly. Um, you, you get, once you're, you're still getting good at being a director when all of a sudden you're a VP. And that's the challenge. And, and that's really what I see is, is I see, I've seen in prior companies, I've seen directors managing, you know, 30 person teams coding on the product and it's completely not their job anymore or a VP on call, right? A VP of, a, of an organization being on the on-call rotation and like dialing in the middle of the night to, to fix issues. That's to me is like, okay, you, you're still doing your old job and you need to figure out how to delegate this and you need to figure out how to do your new job. Uh -huh. No, and it's, it, it is, it isn't that people don't have the ambition. They have the ambition. They, mm -hmm. I want to be the VP. I want to be the, you know, so they, it, it's, they choose to take on that role, but at the same time, choosing to take on that role or matching your ambition to your skill mm -hmm. is difficult, right? Um, you, you still have to learn how to do the job. You, you, it can't just be that you want it and therefore you'll do it. You have to want it and learn how to do it and, and be good at it, right? Because mm -hmm. the choice is always as a, as a founder or as a senior leader, the choice is always going to be, do I promote this person or do I hire someone in who mm -hmm. has experience? And part of this part of this article is just understanding, like at a certain point, no, you, you actually need to hire someone in. I see. So if I understand correctly, this doesn't mean that we have our limits and then that's it. Once we hit a wall, that's as much as we can get. It's just we are not ready yet. So we need to learn right. more, right? Yeah, no, I, I fundamentally believe that um, everyone can learn. 
it takes time to do to learn how to do a job well and when the job is changing very very quickly the the, the scope and the responsibilities are changing very very quickly it's just hard to learn how to do that mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. because i was about to ask a cheeky question of are you actually hinting at you know new people should start at big companies and aspiring leaders should go join big companies to learn and then you know go start up and get rich <laughs> Yeah, well, to be honest, I probably made more money being in big companies than I ever made being in small companies, even even in <laughs> companies that have had su- successful exits. So, no, I don't necessarily. I would never tell anyone that startups are the path to riches because <laughs> I've done I've done pretty well. But honestly, um, joining Microsoft in 1994, yeah, I've never had a company a startup equal the growth of a company that kind of uh, hmm. growth. But uh, no, it really is a personal thing. I joined big companies. I started at IBM partially because when I started, there weren't startups. After IBM, I went to Silicon Graphics, which at the time was was about as close as you'd have to a startup, and it was in the Valley. But you know, at the same time, it, the whole way it, things worked were very different back then. So this kind of modern day startup versus big company is really different. I wouldn't tell anyone you should do you should do anything. I'm never going to tell anyone you do this. And this is the rule because if I ever wrote a book, uh, a, like a, a biography, the title of the book would be, it depends. It's because it, it is always going to depend on you and what you personally look for and what excites you um, and what gets you motivated. So I think sometimes it's going to be the right choice some to, to go to a startup. I think sometimes it's the right choice to go to a big company. Part of it is the, the, It, the type of company you want to work in and then part of it too is also like realistically the amount of security that you want in mm-hmm. your job and the trade-offs that you're going to make around these two different things again like at startup you have that flexibility you can do lots of different roles the, if you're in a successful company you, you see it grow and it can be you know it can be very lucrative but that's never the reason to join that company because most of them aren't Um, in the big company, you get all this training, you get all the support, and you have this big infrastructure around you, and it lets you focus on um, on things and gives you access to technologies that are ubiquitous, like working at IBM, working at Microsoft. You're working on stuff that has just tremendous reach. Where at a startup, you're you're struggling to get every user right. You're trying to sign up every new customer. So the, these two things are very different worlds, and you ha- personally have to decide what it is that you want when you're looking for a job. I would argue that people should try both and and decide what they like because being outside a startup, having never worked in a startup, you have no idea what it's actually like to work in one. And being in a startup and looking at a big company, you you actually don't know what it's like. So I would say, you know, in your career, you should probably do both, but the order you do them in is going to be up to you. One question here is that typically what we see uh, on on the labor market is that startups arrive, you know, big, shiny, the next unicorn, of course, all of them are at one point. Sure. Uh, and they, they try to pull people away fr- uh, through huge bags of promise money, which we call yeah. share options, right? Right. But then they still don't make money. Why? How? Well, one, I'll tell you, anybody that's been, you know, any developer that's been in multiple startups, the uh, a recruiter tells them about, oh, the company's going to be a rocket ship and 
your your share your options are going to be so valuable any of the any of them knows no they're probably not you know it's not that it doesn't happen it absolutely happens but if you've done multiple startups you know well okay there's a chance there's always a chance but it's probably you know the the odds are never in your favor i get a lot more flexibility in my job and i get a lot more kind of growth potential personally in my personal and professional development than i would necessarily in a bigger company and that's mm -hmm. why i'm and that's why i'm choosing this that so i think about it a little bit differently when i talk to prospective um uh, employees that's the way i talk about it mm -hmm. yeah, so the options could be worth a lot or could be worth zero and mm -hmm. as long as you kind of understand that it could be worth a lot of money or could be worth absolutely nothing and you don't count on them being worth a lot of money then you're fine yeah okay okay so uh, if we are already talking about money share options and exits we have seen examples of very successful startups that just wither and die in a couple of years after yeah. being acquired by a company what are the typical reasons for this in your opinion so uh, there was a very interesting the timing on this is is really interesting because as we're recording this there was a uh, article from one of the founders of Waze that was acquired by google talking about his time and experience at google um which i thought was a really interesting take on on kind of what happens at least within his experience um mm -hmm. moving from a startup to being a large company um or being part of a larger company i i've been part of acquiring companies and i've um i've been part of being acquired companies i think that you know you if you as a founder let's talk about it a little bit different you as a founder versus you as an employee you as a founder have to be very very cognizant of the company you're joining right and be aware the thing i think is funny there's the the common myth that you know, companies tell the companies are acquiring about how they'll give them independence and let them run and do all this kind of thing. And generally, like, I, I think they think that that is what they intend to do. But really, over time, there's very little value in acquiring a company and not actually integrating it into the rest of your product portfolio. Adobe was exceptionally good at this, actually. Um, because I think Adobe was very clear about why they would acquire companies and they acquired a lot of companies and it was very much like, no, you're joining this product portfolio and we will integrate you. you and there was a value not only for Adobe, but there was also a lot of value for the companies they were acquiring. Like you become part of the creative suite or you become part of the marketing suite. Um, and, you know, for a lot of companies, I was actually, there's a lot of value for them to do that. Um, it's when this, you know, so it's, it's kind of understanding where you're going, looking at the companies they've acquired before, what they've done, and just trying to do it with open eyes, right? There's the people that are making the deal and what they say and what they intend, but then there's kind of the reality of what it's like to be moving from your little kind of company to being part of a bigger entity. And then, and then that's as a founder, I think being as an employee, um, it, it's being aware, right? So normally, if you're lucky, they've set something up where they're trying to get you to stick around, and that's great. And then you got to kind of learn that. But I think it's also this we talked about, you know, sometimes it's cool to you want to work in part of your career in small companies and part of your career in big companies and understand what's good about both of them. If you come in with very open eyes and saying, like, not only am I get to stay in my little company, but with all these resources of big company, but actually trying to learn, like, 
what what's it like to have all these things what's it like to work at this big company and actually doing it treating it as an opportunity to learn and grow you know there's a lot of value there after the acquisition in the next couple of years there is a, a natural assimilation taking place yes. maybe yeah. some some level of cross-pollination in in, in, in good examples right uh, but I'm very happy that you're saying is that, you know, this, this is not a fairy tale ending. You know, there is a, there is a no. next day. And then, although there are promises being made and try to be kept around, you are going to be separate. You are still your own entity. Yeah. What's the reason for that? What's the reason for, for keeping uh, a recently acquired company as a separate entity? I bought it for a reason. You just said it. Yeah, yeah, of I course. I completely agree with you. So, you know, but again, this, you know, this takes experience to... Uh, right. between the lines so to say so i think one of the reasons why you may and and i i haven't been part of an acquisition where that's been the case to be honest like oh we're going to bring you in but let you be independent mm -hmm. um because of that reason I, i i don't you know um the companies i've led acquisition on i'm either looking at them very clearly like we want to integrate your technology into our product or you have a really great team and we'd like to have them be part of the company um, or we want to add your product to our portfolio but integrated so that's kind of more been the acquisitions i've driven on the acquiring side but mm -hmm. um, you know from uh, from that kind of we're going to let you go independent is really these companies that are growing exceptionally quickly on their own Instagram was a great, I mean, if you look at Facebook's acquisition of Instagram, Instagram was growing tremendously fast. And if Facebook, one, Facebook was probably, um, I don't have insights, I'm guessing. Facebook might have even at that point been a little bit worried about um, a monopoly, possibly. Um, it was earlier, so maybe they weren't worried about it yet. But, but Instagram was going just fine without Facebook. Facebook was looking at it, same with WhatsApp. These companies are growing really, really quickly and we want them to be part of us so that we're not competing with them, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so for that, it's just letting them go and letting them run on their own is fine. Like their success, they were really different products from the Facebook core product and they could let them grow independently and have multiple brands within their portfolio, essentially. So, so that's, that's one reason to do it. Yeah, I think with GitHub and Microsoft, it was a lot more about acquiring like Mindshare within the community. I, obviously, Microsoft's an exceptional company as far as building developer tools and has great um, reputation within that group, but it was really outside the open source world. And it, because it was a long time hostile to the open source world, I think at least partially GitHub acquisition was really a statement about Microsoft embracing the open source and uh, ecosystem a lot, in mm -hmm. a much more stronger way, uh, but also was continuing to become, make sure that it had the mind share of the developer community mm -hmm. as it continued to grow. And, you know, I believe that some of the stuff that's come out of that since that acquisition, even if it's kind of not GitHub or not Microsoft, like VS Code, I think my, obviously Microsoft's exceptionally good at making IDEs, but VS Code, I think, feels like it's got some, because I think there is some GitHub um, GitHub DNA in there, kind of <laughs> as actually they've used that to kind of infect the larger Microsoft and get them thinking a little bit differently. Yeah. I know um, when I was at Adobe, we really looked at, you know, the taking DNA, like I was there when we acquired Macromedia, 
And a big part of it was like the way Macromedia builds products is really interesting and really uh, innovative. And we should get some of that energy into Adobe. And it, it absolutely happened. It changed products that had nothing to do with the, the Macromedia products. It changed how we thought about building products. Mm -hmm. So let's 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 move ahead a little bit. Let's move the startup world a little bit behind, or let's sure. just maybe switch gears for a bit. Um, during your tenure at Avo, Avo or Ava? I'm very sorry. Avo. Uh, Avo. So okay. it comes from the Italian Avocat is a ah. legal tax startup. Okay. And uh, Polish Avocat, and yeah, I know I know a lawyer in, in several languages, not Hungarian, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure it's something like Avocat. Uh, lawyer. Lawyer. Lawyer, almost, but well, in Hungarian it's Ügyvéd. Oh, okay, not even close. <laughs> but Hungarian, Hungarian is a, is a language of uh, of exceptions, by the way. So it's really hard to trace back our, our roots, honestly. But okay, so sorry, let me uh, put the question to you again. So switching gears for a bit, during your tenure at Avo, um, you have successfully improved the diversity of your teams. Yeah. How do you find the right balance between inclusivity? and positive discrimination. And, and just as a quick example for our, our uh, uh, listeners uh, as yeah. well, there are lots of tech companies nowadays are trying to improve their male-female ratio, for example. Right. And in some cases, the feedback from women is that they just feel too much in the, in the limelight and it actually makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. So what's the right balance here? So, you know, the, the problem is, it depends where you're starting. Um, at Avo, uh, when I when I joined the company as as the CTO, uh, there was the the team was not very diverse. And and by the way, um, I come at this from a very even when I work in European companies, I come at this from a very American perspective because I think in a lot of um, a lot of companies in the world, when they think about diversity, they really think male female diversity. And I tend yeah, to that's think the typical only, one. Yeah, that's what they generally think of. Um, but be coming from a, a very diverse country, I tend to think about it not only in male, female, but I also think about it as far as like um, different ethnic origins and things like that. Avo was failing. The company was actually doing well on both of those fronts. The engineering team was doing poorly on both of those fronts. There were some exceptionally good um, female engineers in the company already. Um, who were senior, which was great because, yeah, for a little while it wasn't great for them because they were on a lot of interview loops. And I look, I, I was very upfront with the organization. I think that because we are a consumer facing company, I think right now the engineering team doesn't really reflect our customers. And I think that's important for us to do that. And so I would like, and we were, I'd like us to, that this is something we're going to change. And for the most part, the, the team was actually very supportive of that, which was good. Um, but that meant that you, it's hard to interview and build diversity into a team if when um, folks come and interview with you, they don't see anybody that looks like them. So for a little while, the, the senior um, female engineers on the team were in a lot of interview loops. They had to spend a lot of their time interviewing because I didn't want a prospective can, you know, candidate to come in and not talk to somebody that looked like them. But as long as you're kind of very clear about that um, it, and, and you get 
people on board with it. You know, I, I, if somebody really said, I really don't want to do this, I wasn't going to force them to do it. But uh, I was going to make sure that, you know, for the better, uh, better of the team, we're going to do this for a little while. And the great news is that as you actually improve diversity, they have to do that less and less. And eventually, um, it wasn't really a big problem because there was enough folks of different backgrounds. But even the folks who are coming from sort of majority representation um, from the industry um, yeah, would see that they're joining a diverse team, which I think was also and it was also an important aspect of this mm-hmm. is that you want to make sure that the folks coming from underrepresented groups see people like themselves and know that they're not going to be the only one there. Um, but also you need folks coming from the majority represented groups from the industry to come in and know that they're joining a team that's diverse. And I think for me, that also became valuable because a lot of people like myself, like I'm a cisgendered white male. Um, so I'm very much in the for coming out of the majority of the industry, but it's important to me to be part of diverse teams. It's important for me to be part of diverse companies. I, when I interview, I want to make sure that I'm talking to people who are not cisgendered white males mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I want to ask like, what's the company like? And I want to hear it from their perspective. See, I see. So, uh, over time, diversity becomes natural. If, mm-hmm. you know, if, if people pay a, you know, a conscious effort. If you, if you, you know, there, there's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it's easy because it isn't, it's really hard work. Um, me and the recruiting team and the hiring managers and, and a lot of the engineers um, on the team really invested a lot of time and a lot of energy to make, to, to improve this for the company. And mm-hmm. so I'm not going to pretend that, oh, it's just a very simple thing and you, you boom, it just happens. No, I attended uh, hundreds of meetups of different underrepresented groups, just being visible, not trying to just hire people, just trying to be around and trying to hear um, the concerns and make sure that I, I understood what was going on because I just moved back from Europe um, when I came to Avo, so it had been disconnected for a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but you know, with my with uh, different folks from the recruiting team and the, my hiring managers did the same thing. So we invested a lot into this effort, um, but it does get easier because as you one begin to hire those folks and the those folks from underrepresented groups actually feel like they're cared about or cared for or or they're in an environment that supports them mm-hmm. um, you know there these are networks these, there's networks of lots of networks of developers in the world and word spreads through them um, relatively quickly and so as we had more better representation within the group it got progressively and progressively easier and the, you know I think I wrote an article about this a, a few years ago but I felt like there was there is kind of an inflection point where you reach a certain level of diversity and then it just kind of becomes very naturally sustaining. So once there it really did feel like we got to a point where we were about 25 maybe 30% female um, about 10% uh, underrepresented um, underrepresented kind of ethnic group where it just kind of got easier um, mm-hmm. because not only because every hiring loop just naturally had folks from from different backgrounds or uh, diverse pipe 
diverse folks, but also I think we word was in the community in our local hiring community that we were a good place or cared about this stuff. We became known for it. And then people were starting to select to come to us as opposed to us having to, to constantly kind of uh, try and recruit them. So all that kind of, it just gets a lot easier. And then we had to do a lot less work to just continue to hire mm -hmm. um, and improve things over time. So uh, back back to the point of, of feeling a little bit uncomfortable being in the limelight, mm -hmm. it, we can actually consider it as, as, a, as an upfront investment Absolutely. in, in long-term, you know, feeling good because you're not uh, a diverse, some uh, a diverse person anymore. You're just completely normal. Regular. Where where I think it fails, where where I see companies fail this way, is they aren't serious about it, or they they think they're serious about it. Oh, we want to be more diverse, mm -hmm. or we think we should be more diverse, or we are hearing from the employees that we're not diverse, or we don't support underrepresented groups well, and so they do a little bit of work towards it. And, you know, like any kind, it is a cultural change, like any kind of cultural change, you go through that like Kubo Ross change curve where it gets harder and it gets much harder before it gets easier. And mm -hmm. that where it gets harder is where your folks tend to abandon it, right? We tried a bit, like we put, we, we put, you know, the women on the team and all these interview loops and, but we were still hiring in the old way. So they were mostly talking to men or we were interviewing folks that really weren't qualified for the team because we weren't really trying to do this very hard, very well. Mm -hmm. And so what happens a lot is if you're that person from that underrepresented group and you're being thrown on all these panels and you start to feel like I'm here because we th we're just kind of trying to do this, but we're not really serious about it, you'll burn out really quickly. Mm -hmm. To say that you want to do this, you really have to persevere and you really have to invest in it. You can't kind of try it and then give up. Yeah. You have to take it seriously. You have to, it's, it's the work of the bigger the company, the longer it's going to take, obviously, you know, in a, in a smaller, in a startup, it's much easier. There's fewer people. You have the law of small numbers. Um, is really nice. Mm -hmm. um, it's much easier to do this in a 100 person or 200 person or 300 person company than it is at IBM. Or, you know, it, it, it didn't take long, especially again, in, in a growing company, you also have that benefit as well. Bigger companies hire more slowly, generally. Into, mm -hmm. an, into any of an individual team, they're hiring more slowly. You don't add 50 people into a team. You add a, one person into a team or two people into a team in a year. So I was adding, you know, 30, 40 people into the, the organization. I could really focus on this and, and it, w it became obvious quickly. So that helps a lot. That's another yeah. important part aspect yeah. of this. Because then it becomes just an integral part of culture. Right. It becomes part of your culture. It becomes clear and obvious if, if, if uh, a large company you know, really puts a lot of effort in a higher, a larger, much larger percentage of, of folks from underrepresented groups and then spreads them out into a largely non-diverse engineering organization, nobody can, it, there's no difference. There's no visible difference. It's just, it's just the, the group is too big in a smaller group. Um, it, it's very obvious very quickly. And so that's a, another aspect of this that, that was really important. It's very different. If I was doing this at Avo, it's very different like than what we did at Spotify or what other companies have done. Um, mm -hmm. When you're a 10,000 person or a 100,000 person or 200,000 person organization. Yeah.
I see. I see. Yeah. This is going to be an age-old follow-up question about diversity, but please allow sure. me to do so. Maybe, maybe uh, put a bit of a spin on it. Um, so we all know that diversity uh, is, of course, one of the hot topics nowadays uh, for yeah. any company, uh, and there are a lot of reasons uh, for uh, for it to be. What is your favorite one? My favorite uh, reason why diversity is important. Correct. Yes. Uh, uh, well, you know, I tend to, um, uh, you know, I've built a lot of consumer products. I have seen what non-diverse teams build, right? <laughs> you know, having spent time in the Valley, having spent a lot of time in, on the West coast of the U S you I can name, uh, you know, I can name 50 different products that were really made for, not even for me, like as as a as a white dude, but me if I was twenty, right? The kind of things I needed when I was twenty um, that don't mean anything to me now. But I, there's all these products that that, that come out of the Valley or, or San Francisco or um, or now increasingly Europe. Congratulations, Europe, um, making products for for a very narrow band of people. Um, so I've seen you know, what non-diverse teams produce. And I've been part of, and I've built diverse teams and I've seen the quality and the inclusiveness of the products that those teams have built, especially when you're trying to address a, a wide audience. And so I think it really is the, that I do appreciate and I have seen with my own eyes, the value of that diversity of thought of uh, that teams that are diverse, produce they just produce better products they produce better solutions to problems mm -hmm. and um because i have direct experience with it you know on multiple in multiple different kinds of environments it, to me that is, that is absolutely the the main reason i think there's another part of it that me personally that's kind of me as business leader that's that answer there's me personally where i acknowledge like just the sheer amount of luck I've had being born when I was born, being able to go to a good university for computer science, being able to afford it or figure out how to afford it, you know, being somebody that looks like everybody else in the industry, I've been able to, you know, I understand like where I got to, how I got to. Sure, I hope to think that I have some level of skill and talent, but also honestly, like I've had a lot of luck just by kind of where and who and how I was born. So what I really appreciate as a, a personally, and this is more, more my personal mission, is seeing how we as an industry can improve. I, I want our industry to be a place where anybody can work. I don't like going to conferences and just seeing the sea of people that look like me. Um, which is why I, I've done in the past work with um, like in, in the area here, there's a, an apprenticeship program that um, I've worked with through companies uh, or kind of second career type of um, boot camps and those kinds of things, mm -hmm. because, you know, it is a great path um, for people who haven't been able to naturally come through the normal path um, the way we used to do it to enter the industry and also having hired folks for out of these kinds of programs. I really actually like hiring kind of second career people because they, they're actually, they're, they, one, they're ex super excited to be join the industry 
um, and they're really committed to, to learning and to growing, they've had to do this as adults, not as kind of people just kind of stumbling through into a CS program in a university. So they're really committed to learning and growing, but then also they bring in a, a level of professional maturity because they've done a job. They know how to work and be part of a, a you know, work for a living. And now they're just marrying that with this, where they bring a level of maturity as a as a junior developer, but an experienced person that's really cool relative to folks who hire straight out of university that have never, you know, may have had a job, but never had a real job before. Hmm. Yes. So your life experience matters a lot. It's not just Absolutely. a professional experience. Yeah. And uh, uh, it, it's very good that you mentioned uh, this um, sort of blind side that, that companies who do not invest in diversity yeah. develop practically because you know if if you have a if you do not have diverse teams then your market is also not going to be diverse that's right if you're building a product for a group whether it's you're building a developer product or a b2b product or a consumer product the conversations you, you, if you've been part of this like the conversations you have constantly about should we do this feature should we do that feature um, what's the, what, you know, where should we be prioritizing things on the backlog and, and your product people or somebody's trying to kind of understand the customer and be the voice of the customer. But if you don't have anybody in the group that is actually the customer or represent mm -hmm. Eric has some understanding of, of who the customer is because of their background, um, or the different things you end up, you, you know, we've seen this in big companies. We've seen this in small companies. They build stuff that is well-intentioned. Mm -hmm. um not well you know they meant well but they just missed like obvious things that if they'd had a more diverse team they wouldn't have missed mm -hmm. right this is computer vision algorithms miss, missing like not understanding people of color this is like these all these kinds of things in our industry the dumb stuff we've done i say we i'm not pointing fingers anywhere else the dumb stuff we've done because we just don't have anybody on the team who understands this stuff when i when i was in university you know we uh one of the things that the university was working on was early speech detection early um mm -hmm. speech speech understanding and they had and they built it and they got it to this really advanced stage but the problem was they later figured out it only understood a certain type of accent because everybody on the team had the exact same accent <laughs> and so then they had to go out to the community and like bribe people with ice cream please come and talk to our machine because it only understands this specific accent we need people with a, a more diverse that is the kind of thing we generally we mm -hmm. do, we do a lot and and having more diverse teams kind of stops us from doing that somebody goes you know one you have more input to to whatever you're doing but then two you actually have somebody goes somebody who thinks hey maybe we should talk to some people that don't all have our accent hmm. yeah very good example. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, so practically, what we have we have uh, uh, looked at and talked through in the past uh, minutes or so is yeah. that from the very inception of a startup, creating it and hiring the core, forming the basis of culture, and then growing the company, yeah. making sure that we are actually cognizant of how leaders can become obstacles from time to time. Yeah. Right. And then what happens after, after you know, uh, there is a successful exit because there is an afterlife. We also looked into diversity as a very important aspect of culture, but then maybe bringing our conversation to a close. One really uh, important point that we have not yet touched upon, uh, Kevin, is that how do you actually select 
the culture that you want for your company? This is a critical, critical thing. And, and speaking from personal experience, it's an easy thing to get wrong. I think I've been in a startup where the founder, give, have, having had previous experience, is a, a several time over founder and had a very, you know, having had experience in kind of not great cultures that had developed organically because there wasn't a lot of focus or thought to them, really decided to be very intentional about the culture of the company that, that he wanted to build, which was great. The problem was um, when, and, and th that culture he wanted to build attracted me, attracted a, a good founding team. Mm -hmm. um, but then when it came to time to sort of realize, you know, when, 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 we started to have, you know, our first kind of challenges as a company as we were acquiring customers and and the kind of things you have in any company that's growing. It turned out that what he wanted wasn't actually kind of who he was. <laughs> and so what you ended up having was he'd built this team around this culture he wanted to build, but it wasn't actually core to who kind of what he wanted personally, like what he huh. naturally gravitated to. And so you end up having the the sort of founding team that was all really aligned to the culture of the company that, that the founder wanted to build and the founder who kind of liked that, but then really that wasn't natural for, for them, which could then end up creating a lot of tension. So you need to be, the, the smart part was being really intentional about the culture you, you want to build, understanding that from the beginning, but then making, making sure that is actually, I've been actually now in a couple startups where you know, a founder has a, an idea of the culture they want to build, but they actually haven't lived in that culture. They don't know what that isn't natural to them. They've read a book or they've talked to other founders and they've, uh, and they've heard about these great kind of uh, startup cultures and they decide, oh, I want that, but it isn't really who they are. And then you end up having a lot of dissonance in the organization because what the, the, they say and what they do is, is different. Mm -hmm. So you need to be natural. You need to be genuine about the culture of the company you want to build mm -hmm. you need to understand who you are as a founder um and what you actually kind of what actually works for you and then be very intentional this is like the kind of thing that will reflect me as the founder or founders you need to actually have that discussion and then make sure you're hiring and talking about that mm -hmm. um now a lot of companies don't you know don't do that very few companies have these discussions early on they tend to you know the founders meet each other they know each other they're maybe actually well aligned but they don't really think it through or discuss it and then they just start hiring people and they're hiring people that are good or good developers or good business people and they're not really thinking about you know have come from good companies they're not really thinking about the culture that they're building from these people, like what they like to work or how they want to work or those kinds of things. And so what ends up happening is you get a few years in teams to a reasonable, you know, teams to a certain size. And now you're having strife within the company because some people want to work in this way and some people want to work in that way. And you have kind of a, a you don't, you have, you've organically built a culture, not intentionally built one. So there's a point there where you need to think about, okay, if, if that's happened or you, you had the founders really intentionally think about the culture they were trying to build, but didn't do a good job hiring for that culture, finding people that were aligned to that 
those values, uh, you end up with this kind of situation. In that case, you actually need to do the, the thought through of really what culture have we built and then how do we want to change it over time mm-hmm. and think through that to me, you can do, you can have all the kind of company offsites and that kind of thing you want to try and change a culture, but company culture doesn't really work that way. People believe what they believe and you can't really change them. You can change them a little bit. You can show them a different way of working and hopefully get their buy-in, but realistically people kind of do, people kind of gravitate towards the culture they want to be in as opposed to change themselves to fit the culture of the company they join. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you end up having to solve that over time just by getting much more serious about hiring uh, with a values fit kind of lens. So you're making sure that the people you're hiring are actually well aligned to the to the the culture that you're trying to gravitate towards. And it's a, again, that's like changing diversity. That's a bit of a struggle because you're essentially taking whatever you are and then trying to change it through hiring, which means the initial people coming in are going to say, well, this is what I want, but this is not what's here. And so you, again, you kind of need to persevere and, and it's the same, it's the same thing. So it's this, again, diversity, being a diverse team is, is a values. It's a company value statement. It's part of your culture, just like other things are part of your culture, be it agile or lean or customer focus or these kinds of things that are all kind of part of the company you're trying to build that comes back to you know culture is just like diversity it's about choosing how you hire who you hire that's in the end that's what's going to define the culture is the people define the culture of the company hmm. yes yes and it's it's a lot easier to 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 make a conscious effort at the very beginning of a company instead yes. of change something that has gone sideways this i mean this is what i again like you know having worked in really big companies and, and worked in really small companies one of the reasons i I like you know smaller companies is because you have the law of small numbers it is way easier to change (laughs) is really way easier to change the culture or change the processes or change anything about a 200 person company or 400 person company ibm is not going to change stuff overnight or over a few years Uh, no offense to ibm ibm is a great company um but uh you know i can you know at my startups i can change we can change the whole culture of the company in a year without you know or or two um it's it's possible and you can see the changes happening very very quickly and and involve everyone it's not something that's imposed you know when i've been part of these big companies like they want to change something it's really something that feels imposed upon the organization because you can't be inclusive in a 10,000 person company, you can be inclusive in a 200 person company. Mm-hmm. I mean, how you change you're, things. you're saying that even with a, with a, with a, a small number company, it takes one to two years to change culture. Yeah. Um, that's, I depends think, how, it depends how seriously you're going to change it, but yeah, of, of course. But again, I think this is, this is already a, a big exclamation mark to any future leader that yeah. it, is, it is actually worth investing in culture at the very beginning instead of of doing this two-year journey to do any level of change even when people are really invested and i and i even when people are really invested in in learn and doing things differently right so so it's not like well we've done it this way for a long time or or things are working now why would we change them even mm-hmm. if people are like no 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 we need to change we can see that what we're doing isn't working as well as it could even in that environment to do to do real culture change it takes a while um 
you have to because it's it's you you don't know exactly what it's going to be like at the end mm -hmm. you can't you are evolving just like you evolve a product you're evolving the culture and you're moving in a direction and the people in the company kind of determine what the end result looks like i i the analogy i use is, is you're building you're planting a garden mm -hmm. and when you plant a garden you put you you kind of know what's going to go where the, that this vegetable's here and that vegetable's there and you dig the rows but you don't know how many tomatoes are going to be on this plant or how many leaves are going to be on this rose you just know there's hopefully going to be a rose here there might be three there might be two i'm planting a bunch of seeds i'm not sure what it'll look like but i know it'll be kind of generally like this and that that's really changing culture and building a new culture mm -hmm. um, is very much the same way you're guiding things you're kind of nudging them but the thing the people are going to determine what the end result is going to look like and you can't do that quickly um you can't do that overnight that is a process and and people people need to grow and understand and and kind of ingest this over time you can't and that's really the 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 reason why it takes a while is because people are part of the process and people don't change that quickly yeah okay kevin i i i'm really really do appreciate your time and thank you very much for 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 this podcast um do you have any closing comments suggestions or feedback for us maybe no i this was a i really really appreciate this conversation Peter. um <laughs> thank you uh and no it was, it was great i i hope that uh you know the the folks listening um got some value out of it um got some uh, information or at least different opinions that they can sort of listen to and disregard or listen to and incorporate. It's either is fine by me. Um, and if folks uh, want to reach out to me or follow up with questions, um, Twitter is probably the best way to do that. And my Twitter handle is Kevin Goldsmith, just my name. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.